Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for all the emails and tweets this week. We love hearing from our listeners and want to do a better job of putting your voices on our show. Literally, right? Literally. Okay. So check out our website, crimewriterson.com, where you can learn how to send your questions and comments to us as an audio file using the voice memo function on your cell phone. Is this the thing that I wrote? And put on the on the blog. Yeah, and you're gonna. Oh, great! All right, I feel, We're I'm contributing. Yeah, contributing big time. <laughs> so go to our website, learn how to send your questions and comments using an audio file from your cell phone. While you're on our website, sign up for our newsletter too. And if you go to our website, you can also bookmark our Amazon link. It's a handy way to shop, and uh, you know support our show by buying the things that you normally would buy anyway. Now, we've gotten those links to Amazon UK and Amazon Canada working, which is good. We had a little flub, but uh, worked it out. Bob's your uncle, as they would say. And, uh, so Who would ex- say that? They would say that in, uh, in, in the United Kingdom. Right. In Australia. I'm just going to have to trust you on that. Amazon Australia, I don't know. They just can't do it. They can't do it. And someone bought Dark Heart by going through Amazon Spain. That's nice. You know, somewhere like there in some warehouse in Barcelona, there's a guy going, no es posible. How do we find this? Si es posible. Si es posible. Anyway, we expect to hear items like nappies and clotted cream and Habs jerseys on Toby's upcoming list. And speaking of that list, here it is. Oh, I know. I hear the music. Just a few more items purchased by our listeners using the Amazon link on our website. Now watch me hit the post. CrimeWritersOn.com. Hit the post. This is a podcast. You get you get the, where the music. No, goes. I know it's a podcast though. I can put the music wherever I want. You know that. I know, but it, I'm just gonna go ahead and put it right here. I hate you. Catches salzig herringa, salty herring fish, two hundred grams. Up twenty four by Jawbone Activity Tracker Small Pink Coral. Discontinued by manufacturer. Graffiti fat wrist pad 17 in pink is a 4 inch wide wrist rest for standard length and 3 quarter inch height keyboards and mechanical keyboards. Lego Star Wars Shadow Troopers. Star Wars Yoda inflatable 33 inch wide poly kite sky tails. Americane Hemorrhoidal Ointment Maximum Strength, 1 ounce. Ego Band Pokemon Eevee 6 inch Anime Animal Stuffed Plush Toys.
I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on Serial, Season 2, the podcast about a podcast and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and occasionally other podcasts. Today we'll be talking about Serial Season 2's 10th episode. It's called Thorny Politics, and it's chock full of conversation starters. So joining me now to dive right in is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin shh, Flynn. Shh. It's still, it, St. Patrick's Day was really not that long ago. I was going to say, Kevin, just, we are taping this on St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Thank you very much. And, I do have to turn the headphones down just a bit. And our listeners should know that for Kevin Flynn, St. Patrick's Day is basically Christmas. Also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And I hear it is your and your fire chief husband's anniversary? It is. We're having a kid-free weekend. It's very exciting. I hope it will be kid-free but full of mustaches. Yes, and maybe a little fire pit. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, our favorite negative Nancy, crime fiction writer, Toby Ball. Welcome back, Toby. Thanks. So the first thing that struck me and the first thing I wanted to talk about tonight is usually something we sort of put towards the end of the podcast, and that's the overall narrative style and structure of this episode. It felt very different to me than other episodes this season. There were elements of the writing and the structure that sounded more like straight reporting, even though they had some narrative purpose. So an example is, you know, when Sarah mentions the hearing in which Bo's being in Germany was brought up, then she went to Germany and sort of explained what was happening there. Um, The same with going inside the White House when it was time to do so and telling that story in sort of a complete sidebar style narrative. So I'm wondering, Kevin, what did you think of the writing and layout of this episode? Did it also feel different to you? Um, it, It felt kind of like side by side. You're right. The um, the example of what was happening, uh, you know, when you talk to the officials about, you know, the Rose Garden ceremony, and then there's sort of this side narrative. We're talking about the Bergdahls at a park. I mean, I think they did two things at the same time. You're right. The congressional hearing, that was very much like, you know, listening to Frontline. But then when you get to Germany, while it's very informative, she gets like really kind of deep into it talking about, you know, just sort of the, the spectacle of these two floors of the hospital and like what's happening with Bo. So it, it kind of went back and forth a little bit. What did you think, Laura? Did the narrative style of this episode strike you as different or, you know, in any way texturally a variation from what we've been hearing so far this season? It did. It really, to me, was just so dense. I felt like there was so much information packed into this episode that I, I really had to pay very close attention. And it, it wasn't, to me, like a narrative, you know, storytelling something that was easy for me to listen to. It was something that, you know, was more like straight news reporting almost, but very detailed news reporting with details of what everybody was doing and where they were. But it was definitely very dense and very meaty. What did you think, Toby? Well, I, I think in NPR terms, it seemed a lot more sort of talk of the nation than this American life. It did seem very different than some of the earlier episodes, especially like the one where they're talking about Bona's uh, compatriots getting stuck up on that mountain and things like that, which were like a real sort of adventure narrative type thing. Now, the night before the podcast came out, Serial did a huge document dump via Twitter from the Article 32 hearing. I'm wondering, did any of you guys look at those documents? Kevin, did you? I didn't get to dive into that. I did read the Washington Post and New York Times stories, which also dealt with a lot of those documents. I'm wondering, you know, what was, I don't want to say what was the purpose. I think Serial has been great on the multimedia side as far as the stuff that they've been providing on the website. Their timeline that they put out last week, uh, you know, so this parallel timeline of Bo Bergdahl's story and the war in Afghanistan 
was really helpful, you know, I thought, for, like, getting your mind around what different points were happening. So, you know, a giant document dump, I mean, I think is, you know, just part of the wiki of the serial season two. The podcast started out and she made it very plain that we were going to be talking about politics. We heard that Donald Trump clip. And I just want to mention that, you know, there was another Donald Trump clip that, you know, happened when he was here in New Hampshire that made some news, too, where he talked about uh, Trump did how if he had Bo Bergdahl in a helicopter, the best course of action would have been to just dump him out of the helicopter on the way back. So I think we did get a very clear picture of where we are today with the politics. But this episode goes back in time to the beginning of this becoming a political story. And we hear initially that it all starts with this later regretted five-minute ceremony in the Rose Garden, and then, of course, what Susan Rice said on the morning news programs that weekend. So let's start with that Rose Garden ceremony. We heard a detailed description of how it came together, and we heard that it was kind of like a comedy of errors in a way, a bunch of good circumstances leading to something bad. Laura, what did you think of that part of the narrative and the way that that was unpacked for us? This was really interesting to me. I just felt like as I was listening to this, I'm thinking, had this not played out the way it did, what would Bo Bergdahl be doing now? And I don't think it would be preparing for this court martial. It was amazing to me, though, that just things are so sensitive politically that this five minutes had such a tremendous impact. I could see how it looked like everything fell into place, like in this sort of cosmic way. And and this is how it happened. But I did find myself thinking a lot about how this one event just triggered this aftermath that has gotten us to where we are now. You know, Toby, we heard Sarah tell us that, you know, she got all this information from sources who worked in the White House in the West Wing, actually, when all of this was going on. You know, I think that somewhat informed that part of the story and the way she delivered it. And I'm curious to know what your reaction was to this part of the narrative in this episode. I guess I had several things that I thought about. One was it seems like they let things get away from them a little bit. You know, releasing a written statement seems like the right thing to have done. And then there are these circumstances and they were giddy and uh, let's do it. Let's do it in the Rose Garden. So, you know, probably not the best thing to have done, certainly in hindsight. And then I was also a little bit surprised by Mike Waltz's reaction to it in that he sees that as politicizing Bo's recovery And he was angry that they didn't during that ceremony mention, you know, any irregularities in how he had disappeared, which, again, the guy's been in in enemy hands for five years and he comes back and you have a a five minute ceremony. And the idea that you would like try and temper like the basic happiness of having him back by by like, well, you know, he's potentially a a deserter. That, that would have seemed to, to me to also have been very sort of inappropriate. So it seemed a little ham-handed by the White House. And then I think the response to it, what the people who responded to it negatively wanted out of it was not something that was going to happen either. Right. Well, as a PR guy by day, I was listening to each of these sort of individual steps. And I kept thinking, yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's really good. That's good. You know, it goes from written release and then, oh, let's do a photo. And then each one of these steps, like in and of itself, did not seem like reckless or it seemed like good practice. Certainly if you thought that, you know, the Bergdahls were in Washington and this happened and nobody gave him a call, I mean, that would look badly too. Right. But when everything sort of came together, right, it just came together all wrong in part because you're right that 
there was no mention of the other circumstances around Bo's case. I don't think the president's going to stand there with mom and dad next to, and say, and now he's back. Talk you know, about tone deaf. That would be tone yeah, deaf. Yeah, that would be really tone deaf. So it was sort of, you know, a damned if you do and damned if you don't. Now, whether the thing happened in the Rose Garden or not, and you know, maybe the best case way of presenting it would have been a still photograph released by the White House and the Oval Office or someplace. The Rose Garden is a ceremonial setting. The Rose Garden is where peace accords have been announced. Mm -hmm. The Rose Garden is where things have been signed that are monumental. I mean, the Rose Garden is a big deal place. Right. They could have fed the beast by giving that. They didn't have to give the camera spray, right? Mm -hmm. They could have given the photo and and the uh, signed statement and and could have just gone from there. However, even if you didn't do the Rose Garden ceremony, there were still going to be problems because the narrative of Bo's disappearance had already been out there, even though the stories were conflicting and, and not terribly accurate. And, you know, still hanging over his head is, you know, the, are the consequences for this, plus the whole thing with the Taliban trade and, mm-hmm. the, and Congress was going to get involved. So if it didn't blow up because of that, it would have blown up because of the other things. I remember when President Obama gave his speech after the Osama bin Laden raid in Pakistan and bin Laden was killed. He was accused of politicizing that in that moment and with being disconnected from military culture in that moment. Is there a way, realistically, that this administration in this climate could have done this in any way and not be accused of politicizing it instantly? No, no president could. I mean, we're in such a hyper-political state. You know, everything that President Bush did, you know, with the mission accomplished stuff, that got politicized, you know, by both sides. You know, I remember people saying, okay, end the election. Don't have to have the election because Obama got bin Laden. There was just absolutely no way unless... The president isn't part of it or Congress isn't part of it unless it's just a Department of Defense kind of thing. But it's still going to get politicized. Toby and Laura, do you think that there's any way Obama could have walked away from this situation as a political winner at all by any measure? No, I don't think it matters who's president. I think at this point, this kind of the scene in Washington, it's like whoever is in power is sort of just stuck, I think, in a way, because the other side is going to criticize them no matter what they do. So I think it's just a sign of the times. Toby, do you agree? Yeah, for the most part. Obama was not going to get credit for it. And whether he supposedly made a big deal about it or if he just put out a press release, the fact that it happened, I think, was enough for there to be backlash. Well, let's talk about what happened next, because I think this was the thing, at least that the soldiers explained, really fanned the flames of their fury, which was that Susan Rice made the comment on a morning news program talking about the Bergdahl swap, talking about his imprisonment, that he was in the military and had served with honor and distinction. I remember that happening. I heard the clip and even as you know, empathetic as I may be in this story, sort of having followed it the way that I have this season of Serial, I cringed when I heard her say that, thinking about how it would make his platoon mates feel, people in the military feel. Do you understand, Toby, why, you know, Mike Waltz and these other guys reacted the way they did when they heard Susan Rice, you know, use that expression, honor and distinction? Like, what do you hear when you hear the words honor and distinction? It was exactly the wrong thing to say, I think, because, you know, regardless of anything else, the idea that he was some kind of hero for his actions, I I think he can't really say that. You might be able to say he was heroic in his being able to withstand the five years of deprivation and abuse. But, you know, his comportment as a soldier was not with distinction. 
And I, I don't know who gave her her talking points for this. You know, she's also was sort of famously disastrous in talking about Benghazi mm-hmm. on on the Sunday shows. So yeah, that was. It was clearly a mistake. I don't. I don't think there's any way of sort of justifying that kind of depiction of his service. One of the things that I think, and I'm wondering, Kevin, if you think that Sarah underplayed this a little bit, was the role of the PR machine, the Republican PR machine, and getting those guys on TV. Can you explain a little bit with what you know about how this works? About sort of somebody, an operative, kind of seeking somebody out and inviting them. Because I think Sarah explained it very much like they were angry and they got together and they called each other and said, hey, will you help me with this? Will you help me with this? And she mentioned the PR guy and dropped him in there. But that was a big, big force behind all of these television appearances, right? Well, it seemed to be, you know, and again, this happens, you know, to be fair, both Democratic operatives and Republican operatives will do this if they see a way to take advantage of a situation. And it sounded like these guys... His former platoon mates in in his battalion, you know, they wanted to speak. They wanted to try to set the record straight. But from what we get from Sarah's interviews is that they didn't want to make anything more of that. They weren't trying to get a pound of flesh out of Bo Bergdahl uh, because of what he did. But the whole thing about using the term honor and distinction really stuck in their craw. Mm-hmm. So they were able to find someone or the, the, the someone found them. He became the fixer and got them access to the TV shows. Fox News was the one that was the, the most ambitious running with it, but other networks did too. And it sounded like, you know, when after that was done, that some of these servicemen just said, okay, that's it. You know, they they didn't necessarily want to get on the circuit and be on television every week talking about Bo Bergdahl. They didn't want to be Joe the Plumber or anything like that. And I think also, you know, there's probably a, a healthy skepticism of the military being used by the media or by politicians for their own purposes. And I think that if you believe what we heard in the interviews from this episode of Serial, there wasn't an ulterior motive other than they just felt like they had been disrespected by the way the things had gone down and that, you know, people didn't understand Bo's bigger crime was against the Brotherhood. Remember the end of that Serial episode where Sarah seemed to finally get it when she said, you know, that this whole Band of Brothers thing isn't a cliché? She really, like, finally kind of understood what the military culture was and how that's not just, you know, a slogan, that those guys really feel that, especially if they've been in combat together. And that was the betrayal. It it wasn't necessarily that he turned his back on his country and his flag. He turned his back on his brothers in arms. Mm -hmm. And that was the worst crime. I want to go back to something that you said about a minute ago. You used the word fixer. Now, we should probably explain that a fixer for TV news, it's not just about politics. A fixer can also be the person that takes a crime story, say Natalie Holloway's disappearance, and then sort of peddle it to news networks and then serve as a media representative. But Kind of like an agent. There are people who professionally bring stories to news networks that they think will be of note, and then they either get paid as, you know, consultants or they sort of end up working with the the legal teams. This happens a lot with crime. We should post a link on our website to some articles about fixers. It's a very interesting job in the media that I think most people largely aren't aware exists, and they wonder, for example, why 
a certain crime is on TV all the time. So, you know, why is Lacey Peterson's disappearance all over the place? It's because a fixer found that story and brought it to the network. So yeah, there's a lot of criticism of those fixers focusing on beautiful blonde women and not focusing on the crimes against minorities right. or the elderly or whatnot. Right, and there's also definitely a political wing of, yeah. of, yeah, <laughs> of, the right. fixer, of the fixer business. Okay, so Laura, I have a question for you. I mean, did it strike you at all that Bo, his motivation for, you know, walking away from his post, coming up with a dust one, is that he didn't think anyone would listen to him. And then we hear his platoon mates say exactly the same thing, that they didn't think anyone would listen to them either. So, you know, they decided to kind of band together and go on TV. There was a parallel there. Did that strike you as ironic or interesting? You know, I hadn't even thought of it that way. I was just thinking about a lot how, you know, people in this story, in the way that Sarah's highlighting sort of the events that took place, people really end up being second to politics and the bigger game a lot of the time. In this case, as you're just pointing out, it's not only Bo who was sitting over there basically being held hostage until he was useful, but it's also now, you know, his fellow soldiers who they were not being brought into the narrative and also, you know, kind of being left out of the bigger picture for their role in things. So I think to me, I just looked at it more on a, you know, a little bit more globally, just looking at how the human element here seems to be getting lost quite a lot. It happens over and over again. Yeah. The third arm of this story becoming such a political story was the Obama administration deciding not to tell Congress that they were working on this swap. And, you know, legally, Sarah says they're required to do so 30 days in advance. So you can call it a lie. You can call it a lie by omission. You can call it whatever you want. But it sounds like this kind of thing happens quite a bit. Toby, what did you think of Sarah's explanation of that part of the story? And then what did you think about this idea that, you know, the way to get around it is just to not follow the letter of the law and that this is something that this administration does and it doesn't seem like it's particularly out of the norm? Yeah. No, I thought I thought it was interesting. It highlights, I think, the distrust between the administration and Congress, sort of putting it in context, I think. I don't know if people remember, but when Tom Cotton, who's a freshman senator from Arkansas, sent a letter to the mullahs in Iran basically saying that any treaty that was negotiated by Obama wouldn't last to the next administration. So I think to an extent, not wanting to give people 30 days notice, I think there was a sense in the administration that they would be unable to trust Congress not to meddle in it because that had happened before. Mm -hmm. So it's not an excuse. And the fact that people have done it in the past, I think, isn't necessarily an excuse. But I think that is the reason why they probably felt justified in doing it. It's one symptom of sort of the larger breakdown of the relationship between the White House and Congress in the last six years. Did you catch the detail that she threw in there that there were reporters who knew that the swap was going down and they had been embargoed. They didn't say anything. So in exchange, they were allowed to, you know, that's why they wanted to do the press event was to give them something back because they hadn't said anything. Did you catch that detail, Toby, that there were reporters who knew and yet Congress found out on TV when the, when the news broke? You know, I, I actually missed it. Did you get that, Kevin? Well, yeah, it's it's not the same reporters. You know, if you're, you want to do a solid, you're doing for the one from the Miami Herald who's covering Guantanamo and decided she wasn't going to report all these, uh, you know, planes on the tarmac and some people moving around because she knew something was up. Right. And that she could report after that and not endanger 
the lives of whomever. I mean, to pick up on what Toby was saying, I think it is so out of the norm the way this went down, the way the White House dealt with Congress on it, which is why it was so damaging. Because they felt like the DOD, which is part of, you know, the administration, seemed like the DOD had such a really, you know, good relationship with the staff and the representatives on the House Armed Services Committee that because the way this went down, it just really wrecked that trust. We kind of expect, say, a congressman to kind of fib to us. So when so someone sad. does, sad but true. you kind of like, uh, you know, again with this or whatever. But they seem to have such trust between, you know, what the Department of Defense was saying to them and vice versa, that it's just, they just completely destroyed that by doing it in such, not a little way, but a really big way of making this trade, knowing that they're not supposed to. You know, you can understand because they said this was probably their only chance. And they knew that if they went to Congress, the Congress would say no because they, they had tipped their card so many times. And so and just like saying, well, we'll apologize later. It was clearly illegal and, you know, they clearly got caught. And those are the consequences of that. Let's talk about the trust thing. Laura, we heard that little bit of tape. Sarah Koenig talked to the staffer at the House Armed Services Committee about how unprecedented it was. That woman, I don't think she was named, right? That woman, she didn't have yeah, a name. Yeah, she wasn't. Yeah. What did you think of that conversation? That woman sounded, A, super angry. There was also clearly somebody else in the room with her. I heard a man, like, clear his throat a couple of times during that <laughs> tape. So I don't know if there was a lawyer there for the House Armed Services Committee or something. Did you say, like, like, a double entendre? She was pissed. Yeah, no, it, it just, again, it just strikes me. The relationships here are so fractured to start with. And this was a relationship that sounded like a good relationship. And it seemed like the damage that was done by this one act was just going to be many years, if, you know, even at all to repair. But it just made me think about, you know, if things were so bad that they had to break the law to actually have a chance of making this swap happen and having Bo Bergdahl released, that just really sets a, a really bad tone for what it must be like working in Washington right now. Well, I want to ask a journalism question now because I saw a couple of things along these lines today, and I know that I hear this a lot in public radio reporting myself. And I think somebody on Reddit put it really well. So I'm just going to read uh, this Reddit user's comments. This Reddit user is named VT Duffman. And what he or she wrote was, if anything, Sarah Koenig was pulling a classic journalist move of, I don't want to be accused of being a liberal shill. So I'm going to overrepresent the conservative view that you see so often. Think about her use of voices in this story. I'm paraphrasing this a little bit. So what, what this Reddit user is talking about is Sarah Koenig's use of voices to corroborate her narrative. There's a guy who used to work for Dick Cheney. There's a Texas Republican congressman. There's a Republican staffer who all take the Republican political position. And then to show the other side, she has a third-party account from a White House staffer admitting the Rose Garden thing was a mistake. She has a Democratic congressman lamenting the fact that the trade impacted further Gitmo work. The only arguably neutral position was the analyst who said the trade wasn't really a big deal. So we do have a lot of the GOP side of this political debate, and we have a lot of those voices represented. And I'm wondering, when you listen to reporting like this, does it strike you that we don't hear a left-leaning point of view? Like, the president had to do this. Kevin, what do you think? Well, it's your question about sort of a balance. Now, I know there, there is a, uh, a slogan out there, but it's contradictory. Fair and balanced are two separate things. When I was a reporter, if I did a man-in-the-street interview where I would ask 10 people 
a question about, you know, are you in favor of this, yes or no? If eight say yes and two say no, there was uh, one news director who would say, you have to put the two yeses and the two noes in there. That's balanced. But it is a distortion. What would be fair would be that you have, proportionately, you have three yeses and one no. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, the focus of this is sort of like, why did this become a political hot potato? Mm -hmm. And... You know, this really stuck in the craw of Republicans. Mm -hmm. So talking to Republicans seems to be the appropriate thing to do. To me, it's like the other side is the Democratic congressman. You know, he's talking about saying, yes, the outcome of this was now it's you know harder for us to argue this. I used to have the upper hand. And that statement was corroborated by the Republican congressman on right. the same committee. Right. What did you think, Laura, about just like the journalism and the use of voices in this story? Did you think that it was, as Kevin says, Fair? Or <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you think it was balanced? Do you think? Did you think about it at all? I mean, I, th I just thought this was an interesting comment because I do know reporters, especially public radio reporters, do tread around politics and around Republican politics in a way that I don't think reporters from other kinds of outlets do. I'm just curious to know yeah. your thoughts. You know, I've had stories that I've worked on where, say, there's something going on and there's some people that are sort of the vocal minority that are really upset. And then you report what the vocal minority says. And then people are upset because they're like, well, you didn't quote anyone on the other side. But there was nobody on the other side there. Um, so, you know, you're reporting what happened. But, you know, I, I did think that this was definitely, you know, as I was listening to it, I was thinking, geez, yeah, we've got all the um, people that are, that are angry and they do seem to all be Republicans. I, I would have liked to hear, you know, somebody say something about why they felt that Obama was maybe justified in making the decision that he made here. But I think we could all sort of infer from listening why he did that. It's hard because you, you feel like sometimes you really do have to be so careful to present things in such a way that it doesn't seem slanted at all. But sometimes that's hard. All right. So I would like to move on to talk about the other narrative going on in the episode uh, with Bo Bergdahl. And then, of course, we heard about those congressional hearings. Before we do, though, we have a little bit of business to take care. Right, Kevin? Yeah. So, Laura, I have a question for you. All right. I'm here. Do you have a cookbook in your house? I do have many cookbooks. How many? How many cookbooks do you have? Well, you know what? I've actually downsized my cookbooks recently. So now I probably only have about five. Now, you, you probably do like a lot of people do. Is, oh, you open it up and you flip through and it's like food porn, right? You're looking at like all these great meals. How often do you like go to the grocery store and gather all of those ingredients and actually make that? <laughs> well, I'm not really the norm, Kevin, so I don't know if I'm the one you should be yeah. asking this, because um, I do cook quite a bit. She's, a, yeah. she's got cardamom, like, in her house. <laughs> she's got, like, all of those spices that we don't have that keep us from making the gourmet meals in my cookbook. Right, because you start, like, we will start... Don't put our stuff on Laura, Kevin. We will start... <laughs> We'll start trying to cook. You know, we'll realize that we need, oh, no, a dash of celery seed. <laughs> and we don't have right? And you're in the middle of making it, and you can't make it. Or you take your recipe, and you go to the grocery store, and it's like, I need dinosaur kale. Like, what the hell is that? And it gets expensive when you have to get these specialty mm -hmm. ingredients. Right, right. If you want to get the cardamom, it's fine. But it's, you know, you want a dash of that, and it's nine bucks a jar. And then you've got to, right. you, you know, so. And then and you then, don't use 90% of the jar. And no. then you feel obligated to make, yeah, you feel obligated to make a whole bunch of other stuff that has that ingredient in like it. Like cardamom cookies? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you know, this is a way that makes cooking awesome meals at home easy and fun. 
We're sponsored by Plated. It's a, a no meal planning or shopping idea. You get the most out of every moment in the kitchen and at the table. And here's how it works. First off, you go to plated.com slash crime now for a fantastic offer on your first plated delivery. And what will happen is that you will get sent to you in the mail fantastic meals for two that you and your your boo can make together. But everything is already portioned out. You need a little honey or you need that dinosaur kale or you need a little bit of this or that. It's all in there and it, and it just comes with the directions on how to make it. All right. I'm interrupting this advertisement for a minute because it's time for you, Laura and Toby and me. We need to judge how well Kevin made that transition that time from what we were talking about into this ad. Was it better than last time? About the same? Worse? What do you guys think? I think it was better than last time. Um, but that's not saying much. The, bar, the bar's low. Yeah, the bar is pretty low. So, which, is, which is smart. Yeah. But remember, I'm going to transition back into the darn thing. Okay. Remember, you get hand-picked food, put in an insulated box, fresh produce, antibiotic-free meats. Ooh. Everything that you need delivered straight to your door. And like I said, it's all pre-measured, so nothing goes to waste. Plus, you get that step-by-step recipe card. And then, boom, you know, it's called plated, I think, because you're not going to want to throw it in a casserole dish and throw it on the table. You want to plate it like you're at the restaurant and have that you know, dining out experience right at home. All right. So I did go on the website today and looked at what some of the menu items were because my feeling about services like this is that like, I like to cook. I am a good cook, but I am lazy. And so I get stuck like in like a rut of making the same like four things over and over again. So here's what you would get. You could choose from this week if you were getting plated this week. They have a chicken katsu with wasabi aioli. They have a cheesy parsnip casserole, steak fajitas with roasted tomato salsa. Uh, Toby, there's a peanut curry with sticky rice and a beef and lamb meatballs with green pea risotto. Toby, are you too lazy to just make any of those things of your own volition or would it be better to have them all, all the stuff sent to you so you can make them? Uh, I think I'm probably better off getting it sent to me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see Toby walking around asking for wasabi. All right, so people want to get this sent to them. How can they get it, Kevin? All right, well, they got to do is hurry over to plated.com slash crime now and get a free dinner for two with your first delivery, right? A free dinner for two. Free? Free. Yeah. For two people with your first plated box. Rebecca, you want to get some plated food? I would try some plated food. Laura, how about you? Will you do it? I will do it. And come back, Toby. Will you do it and tell us what your meal was like? Yes. All right. Go to plated.com slash crime for terms. (laughs) For terms and details, that's plated.com slash crime. Remember, you slash crime so that they know you heard it here. All right, Kevin. um, Is there anything else that you need to talk to us about? Yeah. uh, Toby, do you have a car? <laughs> Why do you ask? He has a moped. You have a moped. Suppose you're thinking about like buying another car. Okay, I want. I want to. Let's let's paint a little. I need a bunch of cars. You yep. need a bunch of cars. Let's paint a little mind photograph here. Ready? A head movie. Oh. A head movie. Okay. <laughs> you're sitting. You you're sitting at the dealership. You're sitting across from the guy you just negotiated. The great deal. You know the all weather package. You're getting the, the GPS. The super stereo. And he starts running it up, and you're getting ready to close the deal on the financing. And they say, Mr. Ball, can you explain why you own a house in Nevada? That's not a good feeling. That's not a good feeling. That's pretty embarrassing. (laughs) And that's because in just seconds, some thief could steal your identity, spend your money, and apply for credit cards and loans in your name and damage your credit. And, like, you may not find out in a week or a month. It may be the moment you're sitting there applying for that loan. 
when you realize that somebody's been living your life, at least the better part of it. <laughs> in Nevada. <laughs> in Nevada. <clears throat> hey. Do they caucus? Reno's is great. <laughs> so look, identity theft is no joke. That's why I'm excited that I've got LifeLock Ultimate Plus Identity Theft Protection. They've got my back in protecting me in ways too numerous to count. They're using old school techniques and high technology, watching my bank accounts, my credit, and my good name. So look, no one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but LifeLock Ultimate Plus provides LifeLock's most comprehensive identity theft protection. So go to LifeLock.com now and enter promo code CRIMEWRITERS or call and mention CRIMEWRITERS to save 10%. Call 1-800-866-7341 or go to LifeLock.com. That's LifeLock.com. You sound like... Like you read commercials for a living before. Not everybody has been in public radio, Rebecca. <laughs> Some of us had to be in commercial radio when you were in commercial and radio? eat what we killed. When you were in commercial radio, did you do commercials for No, I was, I was news, oh. so I never, I never did. Did you have to do like traffic and weather and stuff? I did traffic and weather. Do you voice for that? I do. Go ahead. I do. Okay, I haven't done a traffic report in New Hampshire in 15 years, yeah. but I'm going to do one right off the top of my head. All right. All right, coming up there for Turnpike in Nashville, a little stop and go by exits 4 through 6, the tap of the brakes when you get to exit 12, and maybe about five minutes uh, getting through the lights at 101, 114, a little solar delay there. And uh, <laughs> a 93, got a breakdown off of the side by exit 2, probably takes you one Elton John song to get by then. <laughs> in town Manchester, got a little backup on the Amiskeg Bridge, about halfway back. Watch out for an accident at Elm and Chestnut Streets. Wow, very good. Wow. Nobody knows that Elm and Chestnut actually run parallel. so that would... Hidden skill. I yeah. like this work. podcast thing goes belly up. It'd you be great to podcast. Someone could download the traffic report like days later. The traffic report is written in such a way that I still have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> but it's so great now because with Google and stuff, you use satellites. You can actually see. I was guessing half the time. <laughs> It was like, you know, like like 10 people had cell phones, and if one of them called me and told me there was a backup, that was big news. I was like, oh, I could talk about that accident, like, all afternoon. Good for you. Awesome. That was an excellent way to transition out of our ad, Kevin. Nice job. We're getting points, right? All right, well, speaking of journalism, I mean, we're still on that topic. There was a huge New York Times piece that came out this morning, and I think it's interesting how the New York Times is coordinating their coverage with the serial episode drops. I mean, they have access to the same stuff, but also, of course, as Kevin pointed out to me this morning, they don't want to be a day behind the story. Mm. But the New York Times piece, it was pretty meaty. And one of the things, you know, sort of the lead of the story, Laura, was that the army was taking a softer approach before all of this politics happened. And there was a list of charges that he was given and the serious charges that he has now, including that misbehavior for the enemy charge, wasn't even listed initially. I mean, that wasn't what he was facing. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, in a civilian court what would happen if a defendant had that kind of switcheroo? If they, you know, were presented with one list of charges and then it was just like the mayor said something and then all of a sudden there were brand new charges. What kind of consequences or uproar would there be? Oh, I think there would definitely be an uproar. You know, in this case, though, the uproar is what caused this. You know, it seems like the only one sort of sounding the alarm so far is um, Bo's defense attorneys. I think this article was really interesting because it really expanded on something that Sarah's been talking about, you know, the whole season of Serial, where the people that met Bo and talked to him in person definitely seemed to want to take an easier route with him based on how he came across and also, you know, what he'd been through. I thought this was really, really interesting. But, Lori, is it not uncommon in a civilian criminal case 
where, you know, a defendant is presented with a list of charges, but then when it goes to the grand jury, additional charges or uh, yeah. more severe charges come back. So maybe this yeah. isn't necessarily as, as unprecedented. I think in that, yeah, in that case, I was just thinking of it more in the terms of, you know, some political figure standing there and kind of pounding the drum to up the charges. But a lot of times what happens is they will charge somebody with an initial charge to hold them. And then as the case is further investigated, and then it's bound over to a grand jury, there will be, yeah, a lot more charges that come forward in cases. Murder cases, you guys know, a lot of times they start with a second degree murder charge initially. And then as they further investigate, the charges get bumped up based on further evidence that shows that maybe there was more planning involved or that things were more serious. But Toby, don't you think, and you know, we talked about this a bit last week too, that the way this went down really does point, and this is I think what both lawyers are saying, to it not being the result of investigation that now these new charges are there and he's in this more serious situation, but the direct result of this political pressure. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question you know, the, the whole Donald Trump thing doesn't strike me as being as big a deal as John McCain putting mm-hmm. pressure on him mm-hmm. and, you know, threatening hearings. And, you know, he, he actually has some some sway. And to follow up on that point, one of the interesting things in that article was that General Abrams, who is essentially the judge in this case and, you know, I guess the guy that upped the charges, that he is somebody that is slated or is talked about as moving up the ladder as far as commands, and he would have to appear as a matter of routine in front of John McCain and his Armed Services Committee. So, you know, when you hear somebody like that, a potential boss, or at least a potential influencer, kind of throw down the gauntlet and saying something's got to get done, that certainly seemed like a turning point, and you can almost, you know, connect the dots there. It was really interesting, and it was interesting to both read the article and listen to the episode and hear the sort of parallel narratives. The article and our episode last week, too, we talked about the Senate, and we talked about the McCain point of view, and in this episode, we had the hearings in the House. It was extremely interesting to hear those voices from those hearings, to hear the congressman asking those questions, to hear Hagel answer those questions. One of the most interesting moments Moments of it, you know, we heard about you know Hagel preparing not to discuss the circumstances of Bo's capture. We hear the guy running the hearing say, "This is not what this is going to be about." Then we hear that exchange between Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel and Florida Congressman Jeff Miller, and this is the one in which Miller asks why we haven't heard from Bergdahl. Why isn't he here? Why was he still in Germany at the time? That was a very interesting, like, turning point piece of tape. And then we hear Hagel respond like, like outraged, right? That's sort of like, how could you even, you know, we need to let the medical. Kevin, what did you think when you heard I, that? I wouldn't say that, that Hegel was outraged. I will say it was a very dramatic piece of tape. And, you know, you definitely could hear that Miller, he wanted to pin Hegel down. So this was, you could hear, this is like a face-off over this issue. It, it really seemed like Hegel was fighting back against the idea that something more nefarious was going on. You can question whether or not Bo was in a position to provide valuable intel when he was returned. And you can question whether or not what his his mental state of mind was. You can't question his physical deterioration because we see it in the video. He was emaciated. He had bed sores. He had all this documented stuff from being neglected like a stray dog for four years. And we hear through the story about he was not integrated in reality when he came back. He couldn't speak. He couldn't really communicate. 
they said sit, and he just sat right on the floor, and he was sleeping in the bathroom. It wasn't just, yeah, you were injured or whatever, we're going to stick you on a plane and send you to Walter Reed. Toby, we heard, now this this was an interesting pivot point, because then we were able to transition to what was happening in Germany, which I know this was, to me, was the most interesting part of the episode, where we heard about how it was set up for him. You know, they had planned every detail of his going there, and then sort of what the reintegration process was like. Uh, Toby, I would love your thoughts about that part of the episode, hearing about the setup in the hospital, what happened when Bo got there, and then sort of how the reintegration process worked. Worked, and like the communications with the higher ups here in the States interfering with it. What did you think of that part of the episode, Toby? You know, I think it, it starts off with sort of the acknowledgement that this is the first person who's been in that kind of captivity for that length of time since Vietnam, right? So it's a rare opportunity to get data to see what happens to somebody in that kind of situation. So if you're in that part of the service, it's potentially a once in a career opportunity to really, I don't mean interrogate by like questioning, but to kind of look at what the effects are and get as much scientific information as you can out of it. And I mean, that's, it sounds like they were going to put the resources to get the most that they possibly could out of it. And, you know, I'm sure in their minds, and I, I think this is the classic kind of thing where this where you have these specialists who see this this opportunity and then you have people elsewhere who are often sort of above them in the hierarchy who maybe they understand that but they don't give it the same value that the specialists do mm-hmm. and then so that's when you start getting the pressure to like you got to bring them back you right. know, there, there's more important things than what you're doing right and they also haven't talked to Bo in person which does seem to be the magic key to having empathy and thinking that he deserves all this consideration right right and I also think you know again when the congressman's like where is he you know why isn't he here I think he's approaching it as this guy's a traitor mm-hmm. you know this guy should be in prison why are we so concerned about his he's he's safe now and the optics are bad at that moment yeah just freaking drag him in here sit him in a chair and we'll talk to him we will link to that new york times article we mentioned on our website crimewriterson.com because there actually is more detail about what happened to him in the coast guard in that article that sarah koenig didn't really get into that's very interesting as well it's troubling it's very troubling i was really interested in that one of the you know proposed charges at the beginning they were talking about fraudulent enlistment Mm -hmm. i think it was called you know that general Dahl. it was one of three charges you know so the implication being that Bergdahl should have known that he couldn't enlist in the that army. That he tricked them, yes. That he tricked them. Right. Uh, th- that went away. I guess you could say if you know if you want to be the conspiracy guy, that charge wouldn't make the army look good. Right. Because then you're saying, well, this was a guy who shouldn't have been in the first place. Laura, what did you think about this section of the podcast that took place in the German hospital and you know recounting the reintegration and the doctor's work and you know giving Bo choices? You know, like if they wanted to move a sock off my bed, they asked me permission. If they, What did you think about that part of the episode? This was, I think, um, one of my favorite parts of the episode because it just, I, I really like when we kind of get the whole human side of things. And it really just made me stop and think how damaged he was when he was finally released. And it's not like he was released and it's like, oh, he needs to sleep for a little bit and then he's going to be fine. I mean, he's just, he's a mess. I mean, that he can't talk, that he's you know, sleeping in the bathroom that he's, you know, blinking and squinting all the time. It just really gave me this visual of this guy that was just so damaged and 
what a long road he was going to have to go to get back to where he started, if he could even get there. You know, these SEER guys are like the Maytag repairmen of the military, right? Because it's so rare. They train for this. They're experts in analyzing, reintegrating POWs. And these come along, as you said, like once in a career. What struck me was they had these two floors set up mm-hmm. at the, I think it's Lundstrom Hosp- <laughs> Hospital in Something Germany. Something German. The military <laughs> hospital. I bet they, Toby knows. <laughs> it's, it's the Ramstad. Airbase, right? Yeah, Yeah. right. It's the hospital at Ramstead. You know, they didn't just like fly in and just quickly set stuff up. They had created, you know, this whole facility where they had mapped out everything from how they were going to walk him off the plane to when they're going to eat dinner and how they were going to be doing the debriefing and the therapy. And they had been planning this for a long, long time. And it could be that Bo Bergdahl never came home and all of that effort would have gone to waste. So all of these experts, if you want to be cynical about Bo Bergdahl, all these experts, they all have a stake in seeing Bergdahl do well. Right. Because here is the one lab rat that they get to play with. And they can use this information to then help other POWs in the future, ostensibly, right? Right. I mean, that's that's right. kind of what I took I mean, away from it. you'd have to say that you would think that they want the quality of the information and the experience, you know, studying Bo Bergdahl and giving him treatment to be positive and to be constructive so that they can use it again in the future. But if you want to say, you know, Bergdahl had five years to think of an excuse and a way to sell it. You could say these guys were willing to swallow the lie because they had so much of themselves personally and professionally invested in. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's an argument someone could make. Now, one of the reasons why I am a big fan of Sarah Koenig's storytelling style is because I do think she illustrates larger stories with small examples like extraordinarily well. That's just good writing when you can use something small to paint a huge picture. You know, I often in, uh, in we, we give talks about writing talking about the difference between saying someone has a tattoo versus they have a neck tattoo because that tells you it's a completely different kind of person. Or a tramp stamp? <laughs> well, that's not that's not an expression that I wasn't I looking use. at Laura when it's I said that. Sexist to say that, by the way. Toby has a tramp stamp. <laughs> no, I'm afraid of needles. I could never get a tattoo. Anyway, the example that I have of Sarah doing that in this episode, I think masterfully, and Laura, I just wanted to see if you picked up on this too, because I know that you sometimes pick up on these details too, is when she talked about how, you know, someone had given him the compass and then the interference from above and from stateside when all this pressure started building was that why would you give a deserter a compass? And the person then had to take it away. And all I could think about was the conversation that person had to have with Bo Bergdahl when they took the compass away. They had created this environment where he he was in control and he made all these choices. And then that person who gave him this gift had to say, I need to take this from you. I mean, did you find that as moving as I did? I just found it sad. I just felt like, seriously, I mean, at this point, give the guy the compass, you know? I did. I found it to be, again, just politics entering the picture. We heard that Bo Bergdahl didn't know what was going on stateside. He didn't know that he had become a pop culture figure, a political figure, that he was on TV every night. And here he is. We've heard that he has been living with no objects for five years, and he's overwhelmed just by there being objects around him, you know, chairs, pillows, you know, all that stuff. And then somebody has to tell him, oh, by the way, you're on every TV right now in the United States, and it's like a super shitstorm waiting for you when you get there. How do you think that conversation would go? I mean, how would you write that? I keep thinking, you know, sort of the the visual scene of Bergdahl coming in and then he sits on the floor and then so everybody else has to sit on the floor. It reminds me like almost like he's an alien. 
You know, like in a movie, like that's how they would treat, you know, like the first guy comes off the UFO and like, what are you going to, what do you want to talk? We'll, we'll follow your kids. We'll follow your lead right. on whatever ridiculous thing it may be. So how to have that conversation. It reminds me of, I won't use names, but we have a friend who once had to break some very disturbing news to somebody very high up in politics. And it was a group of three guys went into the room and uh, they had a conversation with the candidate and then said, that's all you need to know. However, this guy's going to stick around and tell you one other thing. And they left. And this guy didn't know it was going to fall to him to give this news. So that might have been it. It'd just be like, uh, okay, uh, Sergeant, that's good. Um, Lieutenant Smith here has something he wants to talk to you about. We'll catch you later. Is that how you imagine it going down? <laughs> right. Well, hopefully it was a little more compassionate that. But can you just like imagine just like waking up and all of a sudden realizing there's this whole swath of America that hates you? I sometimes feel that there is already. <laughs> <laughs> have you been on Reddit recently? Well, I will say... I have discovered, we know we complain a lot about when social media sites like Facebook and Twitter make changes. The mute function on Twitter is a gift from God, and that's all that I'm going to say about that. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it's basically like you're blocking people insofar as that you don't see anything that they tweet, but they don't know that you've done that. So oh. they're then not able to tweet about how you muted them the way people tweet about being blocked. Oh. They have no idea, but you just don't ever get to... S- drink the poison. Exactly. Exactly. It's a good time. All right. So we now have this complete picture of Bo Bergdahl as, you know, political pawn. We heard about this prisoner swap. The one final thing I want to talk about is the swap because we heard about the analyst working at Gitmo. And I know that, Laura, you've asked questions a couple of times along the way about, like, what's the deal with these guys? Like, who are these guys? And then we heard this analyst from Gitmo, who we've, Nathan, who we've heard from earlier in the podcast, talk about how these guys weren't, you know, any worse than other guys we've let go. What did you think of that? Yeah, I, I thought that was, I'm, I'm still really perplexed about these five guys because we heard that saying they weren't, you know, worse than anyone else we've let go and that he wouldn't have been too concerned about it. But then we also heard this sort of odd detail earlier about how they had done no review of these guys and they were known as the forever prisoners. Yeah. And I just didn't understand, you know, so it just seems like I feel like there's more of a story of these guys or maybe there's not. But I want to know where they are now. I want to know what they're doing. It's um, sort of a mystery that I, I just keep wanting more information about. Well, wasn't the lack of review about the fact that they wanted to keep them on deck for this? That if they uh, had yeah, I think it was a, it was a deliberate move to not essentially put them in the system. It was yeah. kind of like what they did with Jay well, in had, season one, yeah. where they kind of they were kind of getting cute. If they didn't present these guys and allow them to be rejected, it would give them the freedom to still move around. So it sounded like, you know, they knew that these these guys were blue chips and they were saving them. Now, Toby, when you heard about Nathan talking about, you know, it would have been a bad idea had we not known what they were doing. Did you get the sense, as I did, maybe again, I watch too much Homeland, that we're basically have eyes on these guys as we speak? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think he comes out and says, you know, these guys are like so prominent now that there's no way they could really get away with much because everybody knows who they are. So in that way, the idea that they're suddenly going to become effective super terrorists or whatever, uh, at least he makes it seem like that that's not really a possibility. I think they laid out the case that their military value to the enemy had greatly diminished, as you laid out, Toby. I also kind of compared a little bit to John McCain coming home from Vietnam. The best thing wasn't for John McCain to all of a sudden get back into a fighter jet because that wasn't his value. His right. value ended up becoming being a leader. They basically, the analysts said, you know, that this their, their best value is propaganda for 
their movement. Now, there are reports that have been refuted that at least three of these guys are commanding ISIS forces. And those who say that do not understand the difference between the Afghanistan Taliban and ISIS. They don't even speak the same language. It would be very unlikely for these guys to suddenly be you know, commanders in that kind of army. In a lot of ways, as you know, ISIS is fighting with for relevance with the Taliban and with al-Qaeda in that sphere. So, But you're right. We, I think we probably would like to know what they're up to. But it just seems like, you know, from all the analysis that, and, and maybe it's just, you know, revisionist, but these weren't the five worst guys. Mm -hmm. They were five of the first. Right. But, you know, like Sarah said, do you ever look at the list and just go, what? Yeah. yeah. That was a good moment. It was a good moment. I think that the politics around the Bergdahl story, they range from petty to serious and justified. And on the petty end, I would say, you know, the optics of the Rose Garden thing, I think the soldiers were justified in being pissed about that. I think that there was some pettiness around that, though, in some other spheres. I think that the prisoner swap is certainly a matter of debate whether or not these guys should have gone, and you can say that's serious or not. The one thing that is at the heart of this, Sarah Koenig says, and that a lot of people say, and in fact, in that same speech where Donald Trump in New Hampshire said that he wanted to drop Bo Bergdahl out of a helicopter, he said that five confirmed soldiers had died in the search for Bergdahl and that he had spoken to some of the families. And there is a lot of debate about whether or not soldiers died. We heard from voices in this episode, soldiers' voices, who said that from what they knew it was true. And then we heard the serial team actively begin to investigate that. I felt like we're getting an investigation now at episode 10. It really, it surprised me, and I don't know if they're going to uncover anything. Laura, what did you think when you heard that? I was, uh, wow, that's what I thought. I was, uh, once again, just struck by the fact it reminded me again of that Tampa episode where different branches didn't know what the other branch was doing. And, you know, General Dahl says, well, that's not part of my report. Uh, CENTCOM was going to do that. Um, and then they didn't do it. And so it seemed like everybody thought somebody else was doing it. But then you had Chuck Hagel come out at the hearing and say that nobody, he had no evidence that anybody died searching for Bo. Again, just this lack of communication between the people involved in this case. And a question that, you know, me personally listening to this, I'd like to know the truth because I feel like this is one of those things that you hear all the time. Like if you mention that you're listening to Serial and you mention what the case is about, just out talking to people about it, like we've said, it's a very hot button issue. And people will say, well, you don't know how many people died looking for him. And it, that's one of the things that comes up. And I guess we really don't. So, um, but I was just, again, just struck by this, this lack of communication and everybody sort of passing the buck. Like, I don't know, you know, who was really supposed to do it or if anybody really was supposed to figure this out. Now, Toby, when we heard this in the episode, and this happened relatively late in the episode where she talked about, you know, making these calls and digging into this all I could think of was you, because you've been asking all season long, what is the central question that we're trying to answer here? And now we suddenly have an investigation into the central question around this entire story. Did this satisfy anything for you to hear that? Do you think it's too late? Or are you really interested in seeing if they uncover anything? Well, you think that did anybody die looking for him is the central question? I don't know. I'm wondering if the the central question here is, is it true what they say? Is this part of the story that has framed so much of the Bo Bergdahl narrative, is there truth to it or not? Look, I my feeling is that there's probably no universally acceptable answer. I mean, I think when you say, did anybody die because of what Bo Bergdahl did? 
you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, well, I was going around knocking on doors and then, you know, he, he was killed by a sniper or something. It can be because manpower was put somewhere else that exposed other people who weren't involved in the search and, and something happened there. So depending on the circumstances of different things, I, I think you can see as the ultimate cause of situations that were dangerous and may have resulted in somebody's death being the result of Bo Bergdahl when in fact these people weren't actually actively involved in the search, but their circumstances were affected by the fact that other people were, right? So how do you account for people in that situation? I think people who are pro-Bo would say, well, you know, that's, that's something different. People who are trying to make the case that Bo is a traitor or whatever say, no, it's, it's, it's an absolute result of his walking away. So I don't feel like if that's really the question, it seems like there's a hell of a lot of extraneous stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and maybe the thing is there isn't a question. For me, you know, when I think about the question, it's like at the end of season one, for in the last episode, it was pretty clear what everybody was wanting to know. Right. Did he do it? Did he do it? Is there any, do you have any evidence that he did it or that he didn't do it for the final episode of this season? What's going to be the satisfying end if there is one? Was it worth it? Wasn't that the question? Well, but I think that's so subjective. It's not like Adnan guilty or innocent. How is that going to be answered in a way that would be definitive? Or maybe it's just, you know, is he going to get a fair shake in this, this situation or is politics going to overrule, you know, the justice system? Kevin, what did you think when you heard that Sarah was, you know, sending her serial minions to actually investigate this question? I was kind of excited and I'm looking forward to that episode. Uh, for a couple of reasons. Your original question sort of was, what is the narrative uh, question of, of the, the series? And for a long time, we thought it's, it's you know, the balance of rescuing Bo and what's on the other side of that scale were the five Taliban prisoners. But we really, I think, are now being asked to think in a pivot here is that on the other side of the scale was the life and safety of the other servicemen who had to try to rescue him. Now, I know that in media reports, they cited six military deaths that they attribute or allegedly attribute to operations involving retrieving Bo Bergdahl. And I think the earliest one was in September. I'm thinking of the ones that I'm thinking of here. And so I, I stand to be corrected. But the earliest one was in like mid or late September. We know that Bo walked off at the end of June and it was, uh, you know, convoy hit by an IED. And I was looking at all of them. None of them were, as you say, you know, somebody kicking in the door. However, Toby is right. There is a butterfly effect where if, you know, just the nature of the dust one means that other forces and other things were deployed to the area, either because there was a credible Bo Bergdahl sighting or in- actionable intelligence, or as we were led to believe in episode two, sometimes Bergdahl was used to cry wolf in order to get attention in materials because, you know, that's a way to get what you need. And it was pulled from someplace else. It sounds to me, and I think, you know, the last bit of tape that we heard in the teaser, I believe, was Sarah saying, where it's the effect, but was that... But what was the mission? But what was the mission? Right. That was after the the truck in front of us exploded. Yeah. So, like, you know, it seems, maybe it's pedantic to, like, ask, okay, this guy gave his life 
let's parse out whether or not it was because it was of COVID this or because of right, that. Right. You know, it, you know, in the big scheme of life, that doesn't matter. Somebody died in a war zone. Right. But I guess if you're going to pin a whole lot of this on were people injured, were people, I think it, you, there's probably an accounting that needs to be made of that. Well, we ha- I have to say, Serial does nothing better than the tease for the next episode. And we did get an email from our listener, Scott, who said, there's nothing sexier than an exploding truck in a tease, and that uh, Sarah is a minx for including that and making him want to listen next week. All right, well, this is the part of the episode where we just give the episode of Serial that we just listened to and talked about a letter grade. And we have a new grading system, as our listeners know, uh, set by Toby, at least for himself, where he compares the this episode of Serial to other episodes of Serial rather than to other things. So, Toby, what grade do you give this episode, season two, episode 10, Thorny Politics of Serial? I guess I give it a B minus. Whoa. Uh, okay. Is that, well, good or bad? Just keep talking, Toby. You know, again, I, I think it didn't have like super compelling narrative necessarily, Like, uh, but I really like all the politics stuff. So... You know, if you look at B minus as being about average, that's about where I think it is. Yeah, you keep telling your kids that when they bring home those B minuses. <laughs> no, I give them a big pat on the back. No, actually, my kids do very well. Good. What do you think, Laura? What grade do you give this episode of Serial and why? I'm going to go with a B. Um, I think for me, this was a really dense episode. I think this was all necessary information that we had to have to sort of put all of this into context and understand you know, how this fits in to the political process and the political pressure and how that resulted in um, the court case moving forward. But it was it was not as easy listening as um, some of the other episodes that were more narrative driven. Kevin, you're making a sour face. Why is that? No, I'm just I got a little booger that I'm running. <laughs> I'm not picking. I'm just rubbing the outside of the nose like that. It's not a pick. It's a scratch. It's not a pick. It's a scratch. What, what grade do you give this episode? I'm going to give it an A minus. Uh-huh. Uh, I really like the content. And again, it answers another big why, mm-hmm. which is the why did this get to be the shit storm? And we hear all sorts of stuff that we never heard before and from people that we hadn't heard from either. And so, you know, I did like the analysis. I thought that the it was just a small clip, but it built to this congressional hearing tape. And I thought the exchange between Hagel and Miller was really was really good to hear. And, you know, the last 10 minutes about what was going on in Germany mm-hmm. with Bo, you know, the whole time that again, where the world is going upside down, you know, back in the U.S., I thought, I mean, I just, there was so many fascinating things, and it's, again, it fits the bigger quilt of episodes that are stitched together in this season. I'm going to disagree with all of you. I thought this episode was excellent. I loved every minute of it. I thought it was the most entertaining episode of the season. I thought it was... Really compelling the way that it was put together and written. And initially, you know, when Toby said it was more talk of the nation than this American life, I actually thought it paired really well with that New York Times story we read today. It sounded to me, I felt like I was reading a great article. I loved the way that it was laid out. I loved the language. I loved the expository journalism. And I'm not going to give it an A+, because I'm saving that for, you know... When we find out that, you know, it's Bo Bergdahl who killed Eamon Lee or something like that, I really feel like I got to reserve the A plus, like as Toby is doing, but I'm giving it a solid A. Solid A for this episode of Serial. All right. All right. So now it's time to move on to my favorite part of the episode, as you all know, a little something I like to call the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. 
And another radio sound effect that you just did? I know. I just held my nose trying to get that booger. Uh, can you real quick do your um, airline pilot voice, too? That's another one that Kevin does. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please uh, fasten your seats. It's time for <laughs> the crime of the week. <laughs> Off to your left, you will see the Hoover Dam. A worker at Brinks in Alabama is accused of stealing $200,000 but doing so by stealing them in quarters, replacing the bags of coins with beads, apparently. In case you're wondering just how much $200,000 in quarters weighs, it weighs 10,000 pounds, about the same as a large hippo. So, my question for you all is this. And Did I he stuff them like in his pants pocket or something? Yeah, the, the, We will post a link to this on our website. People can find out for themselves. So, my question for you is this, and I'll start with you, Toby. If you had 10,000 pounds worth of quarters, how would you spend them? I'd get a whole lot of pinball machines. <laughs> <laughs> that's reasonable. That's a reasonable. That, that was that's what I pictured is this guy like making his way to this warehouse full of pinball machines and just playing for years. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe meeting up with the guy who stole the wings a couple years ago. <laughs> There's some twelve year old kid going, I got next. What about you, Laura? How would you spend ten thousand pounds or two hundred thousand dollars in quarters? Um, I think I would go convert it at the little change machine they have at the grocery store. Um, so that, yeah, I know, but that would be heavy. I, I'm not really sure. Um, Will I'd it in on a hand truck and start dumping it? And then I'd go on a nice little trip. There's got to be some like fancy cookware or something that you've been uh, yearning to buy, right? I've got too much cookware. I'm trying to downsize on that. Maybe I'd take it to the Cayman Islands and uh, hide it offshore. It's not a bad idea. What the about plane you? would list to one side. <laughs> <laughs> well, not after I went to the change machine to convert it. That's true. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? What would, what would you do with 10,000 pounds of quarters? Uh, I would do three things. One, I'd go to the laundromat. Mm -hmm. uh, two, I would put them in a sock and go find Ronnie Othier, and, uh, who terrorized me in uh, grade school, and beat him up with it. <laughs> and I probably would be that jerk who goes and pays his property tax in all quarters <laughs> and stand there and watch the poor civil servants count them out. Yeah, yeah, register your car. <laughs> just, there's got to be, you know, you must have had a plan. On how do you launder this? You know what I would do? What would you do, Rebecca? I would go to that car dealership where Toby isn't able to finish that deal because his identity was stolen. And I'd, you know, buy that car for him in the quarters. I got you, Toby. Here's your down payment. <laughs> Ching! All right. We should probably end it on that note, right? Yeah. Toby, if our listeners want to interact with you, perhaps send you some quarters. How can they find you on Twitter? Uh, Toby Ball NH. What about you, Laura? I know that you are on the Twitter, right? I am always on the Twitter. It's at Lara Bricker, L-A-R-A. One second. Toby, I understand that you had a milestone on Twitter this week, did you not? I, I did, and then I didn't. But now I... Now I no, don't say I got, it. I got exactly 1,000 followers, and then somebody unfollowed me. Yep. So I was back down to 999. <laughs> That's then, how it goes. Actually, while we've been recording, somebody else followed me. So now I've got 1,000 again. Boom. All right. I'm going to unfollow you right after. And they're going to listen to you on this episode and like you're going to lose five more. It was like when I was little, like you'd watch the odometer and you'd be waiting for mm -hmm. it to like flip. And then you turn your head and miss it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah we you had a lot. Be another thousand miles before you could check it out again. We have a lot of listeners, and they really should follow. We really do interact with our our followers on Twitter. I know. And I will say, I've looked at the profile photos. We have the most beautiful listeners. 
Oh, what a kiss ass. The guys, <laughs> and especially the ladies. <laughs> what about you, Kevin? How can people uh, sexually harass you on Twitter? Oh, well, then you should uh, send your nasty photos to me at <laughs> Kevin P. Flynn. Um, hey, it's going to be the crime of the week next week. Oh! I'm just going to go ahead and leave that in the tape so people can uh, do that on their own. And if you want to send me a tweet, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. Our show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. So if you've got questions, tweet them our way. Or you can send us a voice memo. Maybe we'll use it on the show. The directions for how to do that are posted on our website, crimewriterson.com. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter, make a PayPal donation, or use that Amazon link. And if you love the show, please do leave a review on iTunes. It helps new listeners discover us. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. And this show was recorded in Control Room 5 at New Hampshire Public Radio. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you next week. Did you just run up a flight of stairs or something? Fuck you. <laughs> that was a very deep breath. Okay. <sighs> it's my turn to talk. Okay? Right. Hey, hey, everyone. everyone. <laughs> just a few more items purchased by our listeners using the Amazon link on our website, Watch me hit the post. Writer. Shit. Hello. 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 Hi. Hi. We're just talking about the fact that uh, we want to make sure we're going to get home tonight so we can see if we have power. Oh. Apparently there were some outages because of the microbursts traveling through the area. Yeah, it was crazy. For like five minutes, it was insanely windy. And it took down this huge limb in my neighbor's yard. I had to lend him my chainsaw. You have a chainsaw? Yeah, yeah. that sort of surprises me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Toby. I just don't see Toby out chopping down trees. Me neither. I'm, I'm big with the chainsaw. Really? Oh, yeah. Have you ever cut off your own leg? <laughs> On purpose? There's a conversation like starter. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had a close one? Toby, yeah. you ever dismember no, a body and then burn it in your backyard <laughs> using that <Yeah>. chainsaw? <laughs> Sometimes. The third arm of, of this sort of um, politization... Politization... <laughs> <laughs> I know this word. I'm not going to say it. Identity theft is no joke. That's why I'm excited that I've got LifeLock Ultimate Plus Identity Theft Protection. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But LifeLock Ultimate Plus provides LifeLock's most comprehensive identity theft protection. Go to LifeLock.com now and enter promo code CRIMEWRITERS or call and mention CRIMEWRITERS to save 10%. Call one 800 866 7341 or go to lifelock.com that's lifelock.com I feel so protected now <laughs> thanks Ahem. I didn't know I was on it I'm so glad I am yeah thanks I'm what you might call very good at hide and seek and since we got Xfinity we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super secret hiding spots so I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite ha Found you. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.